Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Ordelay Pro Cycling Podcast. I'm Whit Yost, and I'm joined, as always, by my good friend and colleague, Joe Lindsay. Joe, how you doing? Uh, doing all right. Just, uh, I don't know, recovering isn't the right world, word from uh, World Championships, but uh, it's, you know, it's the end of the season now, and things are sort of slowing down and getting quiet, I feel like. Mm. Uh, absolutely. I mean, just uh, coming up with things to talk about, I think, is going to get increasingly more challenging as the weeks progress. But we do we do have worlds to talk about. Peter Sagan did the hat trick, made history, won three in a row. Um, what, what are your thoughts? I mean, it, it's funny. I, I, I found myself standing and screaming at the TV as I was watching the sprint. I thought it was really exciting. But then as soon as it was over, I felt incredibly deflated as if I'd had this really satisfying minute of racing but 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 the rest of it i just felt was kind of the same formula that world seems to have been going in the past few years though you mean the race the race overall the race overall yeah i mean you know like you get that early break with Mm -hmm. riders from azerbaijan and zimbabwe and 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 wherever they get a huge lead then they're caught then there's a move with about 60k left and unfortunately your pick to win the race initiated it tim wellens mm-hmm. um you know the major teams <laughs> try to represent themselves in that move but then ultimately it comes back together before mm-hmm. the attackers attack on the final climb and then are reeled in right before the sprint i guess the only suspense this year was that we didn't see for the final 5k right. you know <laughs> yeah like, what I feel like I was watching the, the Colorado Classic all over again. Yeah, right? Like, oh, our fixed wing is grounded. So sorry. But that wasn't it. They just lost feed from the moto. So yeah. uh, let me ask you this. How much of the race did you watch? I watched, I guess, the final... I guess about the final 100K, but okay. obviously I focused in intently mm-hmm. on, say, the final 20 or 30. yeah. See, that's the, that's the thing to me about Worlds is that it's it's like, I, I put it in the category sort of as like a long tour stage where watching more than about 50K, there's no point to it. Like, like you said, like that early break, um, great. Good luck, guys. Like, I can't, yeah. I cannot remember the last time that a that a guy won Worlds out of an early breakaway. I'm I'm sure if I went back through the results, I can find it for you and that kind of thing. But you're right. It just there's sort of a formula to it, and that's not part of the formula. The formula is that that early break gets caught, and that there's a second break that goes, like you said, the one that was initiated by Tim Wellens, um, and then you know that usually comes back together again. And so to me, that you know that makes Worlds one of those interesting races where it's you know it's like milan san remo where it's like you know why would you even bother to turn in and tune in until well after the turquino absolutely no and 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 if you weren't going to bring it up i would have but it's exactly like milan san remo and, and mm-hmm. i guess the beauty of it or the fun of watching worlds is that slow build to the climactic mm-hmm. finish but yeah. then as soon as it's over <laughs> you're just like okay what race is next and you know i mean yeah it, no, I, nobody I agree with talks that. about. I'll use the word epic, but nobody talks about epic world championships, just like they rarely talk about epic Milan San Remos. So. I wonder. Do you think that's a feature of circuit racing in general? Hmm. I think so. I definitely think it is because while I'm not going to say that circuit racing isn't as tactical as point to point racing, I feel like the tactics are much 
easier to predict. I mean, when you're doing, uh, I don't know how, exactly how many laps they did, but when you're doing 10, 12, 14 mm-hmm. laps of a circuit, you have lots of opportunities to kind of figure out where the best place to go is, you right. know, and how. And, and so I, I just, <clears throat> yeah, I mean. I, th- I think, honestly, it's more tactical because of that. It's more uh-huh. defensive and cautious, but I, th- I think that's the thing. is like guys aren't willing to gamble because they're like, why bother? Okay. No, I know what you mean. I mean, if, I mean, if it's like a football team, it's like a team that has a, a really strong defense and a, and, a, and, a, and a quarterback that just manages the game. I mean, right. yeah. It, yeah. Why no, stretch that, downfield? That's a really good point. Yeah. Yep, no, I, I think maybe we're saying the same thing slightly different ways. I don't know. Um, but, yeah, that, that's kind of my sense is that circuit racing in general is like that because, you know, it's like it goes back to uh, – it was hilarious. I wrote about this a little bit for bicycling. Like, you know, Peter Sagan um, – was asked before the race, you know, have you previewed the course? And he sort of like, his answer sort of betrayed this like sort of befuddlement that the question would even be asked, right? He's like, what do you mean? We're like, he's like, we do the we do the circuit twelve times. It's a lot of time to check it out. Yeah, you know. He's like, mm. and that was all like, you know, about him and tactics and stuff. But I mean, it's an excellent point. Like, unless there's some specific feature of the course that you really need to know, then what's the point? You're gonna get however many dry runs through that to figure out like speed and pacing and position and all that kind of stuff. Like you don't need to go and like recon this stuff. It's not like a, you know, it's not like the finishing climb of the Izzard or something. Absolutely. And and I don't think that's going to change until we see a course profile that's so hard, it <clears throat> becomes more of a race of attrition than a race mm-hmm. of, of, of tactics. And I've, maybe next year in Austria we're going to get maybe. something similar to that. But at the end yeah. of the day, I don't know. It says it, you know, the, the, I saw a story today that said that, uh, that the Innsbruck course has 1,000 meters more climbing than this. But, you know, this course had 3,600-some meters of climbing. And, I mean, it wasn't flat. But the Salmon Hill climb, as we discussed, just wasn't, long enough steep enough close enough to the finish to be decisive so we'll see about Innsbruck I mean I have to go back to honestly to um Pomferrada Spain uh I think that was Kwiatkowski right uh to to remember a course that was strong enough to really sort of force that kind of selection I think you know that when you take a race like Bergen it's like 265 kilometers and like Milan San Remo it's the distance and the cumulative difficulty over that distance that forces that selection, it's not any one feature of the course. Absolutely, yeah. And I think, too, I th- for this year, I think it just came down to, I mean, the climb was obviously itself difficult enough to force some sort of selection or at mm-hmm. least, be, you know, serve as a launch pad for aggressive for sure. riding. And, like, hats off to Julian Alaphilippe. I just can't wait to see him, hopefully yeah. healthy, in the Ardennes next year. Um, and Johnny Moscon... You know, d- disqualification, sticky bidon aside, Boom. you know, he uh, he he has really been a revelation of the last four or five weeks. But but it just was too far from the finish. I mean, if, yeah. if the finish line were three or four K, yeah, we would have we would have been good for them I mean, to uh, pull off a breakaway victory. But no. Nope. Think about this. The, f- the finishing group in Bergen was actually l- on a hilly course, quote unquote, was actually smaller than last year's finishing group on the flats in, in Qatar. I'm smaller sorry, or larger, larger. larger yeah it was okay. sorry, it was larger there was a bigger group on this hillier course than there was last year in cutter because of the way that the belgians forced the uh the split and the crosswinds and stuff so yeah i mean it just wasn't hard enough 
for that. Yeah. And and you also had like look at the the interesting thing was to me like look at the guys who are, you know who make up that top twenty. You've got pure spinners like Kristoff finishing second. You've got you know classics guys like Van Avermaet in sixth. You've got climbers like Alaphilippe in there. Um, you got all runners like Kwiatkowski, Tony Galapan, guys. I mean, it was like, it was a total hodgepodge. There were all kinds of people in the mix. Which I guess on one hand speaks to the race's credit that it, yeah. that it did, it did serve a diverse group of riders. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, it, it's, in fact, did you read the Velo News, um, analysis of the, the, I guess we'll call it the lost footage from Bergen? Yeah, I did. Um, with all those late attacks yeah i mean it it sounds like we actually missed the four most exciting kilometers (laughs) of the race unfortunately Um, yeah watching that and and that uh, so here's a this is just like a one of those like primal scream gripes it's just like okay so they lost the moto why but obviously they had helicopter footage why didn't they switch to that why did they get a fixed camera at the finish line yeah yeah i i don't get it i don't get it I, I, I was it. just like, I mean, that's this is the UCI showcase. It's the one race of the year that they sort of like organize and promote themselves that anybody gives a damn about, and they completely flopped. Yep. Like, okay, great, you lost Moto One, but you know, but you've got other options. I don't know. It just it made it. It was like after all of that, like after after you watched a hundred k, I wonder if like some part of your deflated feeling at the end of it was the fact that you missed. You know, the four, like you said, the four to five most exciting kilometers of the entire damn race. No, you're exactly you're exactly right. I mean, it's like I I I just I just invested this much time and now I'm going to watch guys awkwardly, you know, (laughs) and and I think they said race radio cut out as well. So they didn't even know what was really happening. Yeah. Um, at, at least the feed that I was I was watching the NBC Sports feed, and they said mm-hmm. at one point that, that that race radio cut out, so they had no huh. idea what was happening. It was just like, all right, and it looks like here come more motos. Maybe the race is coming right, soon. Maybe. You know? <laughs> oh look, let's see if Alaphilippe managed to stay off. You know? Yeah. Oh no, he didn't. And yeah, then you got you know I don't know. You, you've also got you know things like Michael Vaughan attacking like that. Nobody even saw. Yeah. <laughs> like sorry, thanks, dude. Thanks for showing up. <laughs> I appreciate you turning yourself inside out for our entertainment, but nobody saw it. <laughs> anyway. What about Sagan, though? I mean, what about do you find it? And well, I guess, and maybe this just, I guess, again, proves the point that it sounds like we're both making. It's interesting that Sagan can win worlds three times in a row, but aside from winning the Tour of Flanders last year, he still struggles in monuments, you know? Mm-hmm. And, I, and I wonder if, if worlds. <laughs> Because of the emphasis on more defensive rather than offensive mm-hmm. tactics, if it's just an easier race for his pure talent to 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 win out. Yeah, I think you probably have a point there. I mean, like the guy is the most complete bike racer in the sport right now. Um, <clears throat> he can climb better than any of the other sprinters. He can time trial. He's, he's he can sprint you know, on a par with the best sprinters and his bike handling skills are second to none. So you put him in this situation where even with a, a smaller team that can't control things and, you know, and, and can't really dictate the the pace of the race where he's reacting, even like when he said with 5k to go feeling like, Oh, you know, we screwed this up, you know, that's it. There it goes. Um, he's still got the, the skills and the ability to, to finish it off. I mean, like, <clears throat> you know, whatever else, like it was genius for him to put himself on Christoph's wheel mm. because you've got a guy like, 
Kristoff's a super, you know, obviously he's a great sprinter, but he also tends to start from farther out. Um, yeah. He kind of winds up for a ways. He's on home soil. He's in the finishing sprint. He's like trying to win one for the home team. He's on somewhat of a down year. You know, he's had a rough season with his trade team, with, with Katusha, with kind of falling out with management, all of that. Like, what better place to springboard yourself from than Christoph's wheel? And Sagan was the one. Not not Matthews, not Trentine, not Swift, not Kaviria. Matthew, you know, Sagan was the one who got that wheel. And you could see, like, when he launched his jump, uh, when I watched that, uh, you know, those final that final kilometer on the, the overhead, his jump was unbeatable. Like Matthews was, you know, angry that, you know, he went, tried to follow an attack earlier and quote unquote, used too much energy. I'm like, Hey, you know what, Michael, thanks for showing up, but you weren't going to beat him no matter what. And as the Velo news article and the, and the footage pointed out, Sagan <coughs> followed quite a few attacks himself. So. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's not <laughs> like Sagan was just like sitting there, like freewheeling in the bunch. So. Yeah. Anybody disappoint I mean, you, or were you surprised by no. folks that, that that didn't show up? Uh, disappointed by by riders who didn't make it in the final, or or just well, I guess uh, for example, I I would have expected a better showing from Belgium, you know, given yeah, I, given I the riders they that too. they had. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I I think I think Gilbert in particular. I mean, obviously he wasn't strong enough to follow the final attack. Um, right. I wonder if the long season. Plus, his age has just sort of caught up with him a little bit. But. It's possible. I think, you know, that crash the, the going into Salmon Hill that last time, I think that really disrupted things for them, too. Yeah. Because so, they had, like, two or three guys go down on that wreck. Um, yeah. And so I think that was, you know, obviously that was an issue. I think, you know, Trentine, obviously, for Italy, they were very strong late. Um Denmark was very strong. Like they had like four guys in that group. Um, yeah. It was really, you know, really surprising. Like you know, Soren Soren Krog Anderson. I I thought he was going to uncork a better sprint than that, quite honestly. But um, I don't know. I mean, did anybody disappoint me? Not really. And I also I will say I was not like I didn't feel deflated or disappointed by Sagan's win. I mean, to to be the first rider to win three straight. On the men's side is is pretty amazing, um, and the idea that he could become the first you know the first men's rider to win four world championships next year is is also pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, I I, I think next year it'll be a tougher proposition. I mean, it remains to be seen, but but, yeah. but he's he's shown us that we shouldn't we should never count him out. Not at One all. One rider, I guess, though, who left me scratching my head though was Fernando Gaviria. I mean, he was mm-hmm. covering attacks really early, and I just yeah. felt like. That's a good point. Why are you? Why are you? Why aren't you just sitting back? I mean, right. Uh, that 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 really had me wondering what was going on. I mean, maybe it was just nerves. I mean, he he definitely seems to fall short when the pressure is on. You know, whether it's <coughs> mm-hmm. Milan San Remo last year, Worlds this year. Mm-hmm. I, I just uh, I think that's going to be the next phase in his development. I mean, winning Paris Tour is, unfortunately, as we're going to talk about later, isn't what it used to be. Right. Winning four stages at the Giro is impressive, but there wasn't much competition there. So no. next year, one of the big questions I guess I'm going to have for him is, is, is he going to be able to deliver on a bigger stage at the Tour de France, right. at Milan San Remo? You yeah, know, like can he, can he handle his own 
basically can he handle himself in those situations because mm-hmm. like whatever in that situation like outside pressure and that kind of thing it, it doesn't really matter it's all about responding in the moment and figuring things out on the fly you're not like you're not getting anything meaningful from the team director you've got to f- figure this stuff out on your own and that's what guys like Sagan are so good at I think Gaviria has shown that he still has you know he still has a little bit to learn there um, but yeah, I thought it was interesting to see him sort of responding to and launching a few you know, late attacks of his own. I, I had the same thought. I was like, what are you doing? You're one of the best sprinters in the sport. Like, just sit in and get on a good wheel. And you're on a good team. I mean, there, you mean to tell me that there weren't other, other riders that could have followed some of those moves on his behalf? So definitely right. some, some right. chaos in the Colombian, Colombian team. Well, uh, Worlds is also I mean, where lots of announcements are made about the uh, season to come, and and mm-hmm. this year it was also we 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 elected a new not we but they elected a new UCI president. So Brian Cookson lost to the Frenchman um, David Lapartien. Uh, what do you have any thoughts on the change in power at at the UCI, or is it just a bit of a non-event for you? You know, it, it's interesting because you go back to 2013 and how big a focus that election was of, you know, Cooks and the insurgent running against McQuaid and the establishment and how much attention was paid to that. And, you know, there were the media outlets covered, you know, the, the Congress and the vote and all of this stuff. And then this year it was like, oh, yeah, there's these two guys. And, and it's the same dynamic in some ways, but nobody paid nearly as much attention to it in the media. It was sort of like, oh, yeah, we, we elected the other guy. And I think that to me underlines like how similar their platforms were in a lot of ways. Um, I think La Partiente won because for two reasons. One, um, he, I think, was better at the sort of the nitty-gritty of vote gathering in the earlier stretches. You know, he sounds like he reached out to a bunch of the federations, a bunch of the voters. And remember, there's, only, there's less than 40 delegate votes in this whole thing. Um, so it's a vanishingly small group of people who are electing the, you know, the guy who's going to head the entire uh, sport of pro cycling. Um, La Partiente was better at reaching out to them. And I think the other thing is it was a bit of a referendum on frustration with Cookson's delivery on his platform the past four years. You know, he promised bold change and quite honestly, we didn't really get a lot of it. There was, he ended up being a very cautious UCI president. You'd ask him about an issue and he would say, well, you know, we've got to study that some more. Like, yeah, but what are you going to do about it? And study, you know, is sort of like the, the old, like, you know, cliche of like, let's set up a blue ribbon commission. And there was a lot of blue ribbon commissions. But if you look at things like, you know, the, the reconciliation commission was a classic example. They spent 3 million euro or whatever on this thing only to find out like, yes, doping occurred. It was bad. Thank you. Let's move on. Like, awesome. Really? Yeah. But here's the thing. I mean, the the UCI is such a convoluted entity. I mean, Mm -hmm. is it really possible to make bold sweeping changes when you have national federations and race organizers and some pretty powerful team owners and managers. I mean, mm-hmm. is I guess I just wonder if it was just unfair to expect a lot of bold sweeping changes. Now, granted, Cookson shouldn't have promised them. Sure. But, you know, I, I, I guess I wonder. I read mm-hmm. what the Outer Line um, mm-hmm. posted about it, their recommendation beforehand, and I found that really persuasive. I, I mean, I, I'm really curious what Cookson may have done had he another chance to sort of continue trying to deliver 
on his um, campaign promises. I also wonder if he's catching a little bit of backlash from Team Sky. You know, I mean, he oh, yeah. he's been, you know, suspiciously quiet on a lot of the things that happened to the team this year, Jiffy Bags and so on. Um, mm-hmm. And as a and as a as a as someone from Great Britain, I can't help but wonder if he's just being lumped into the sport's growing distaste for the way that Sky operates. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think that does play a role. And I, th- I think the thing that I would add there is that I don't know that he's necessarily just being lumped in. I think there are some significant questions about, you know, before he ascended to the role of UCI president in 2013. You know what? What was his role in helping to set up the culture at British Cycling that allowed all of this crap to to go on? I think that's True. a legit question. Um, yeah. I also think that you know, yeah, I agree that you know the UCI is you know such a bureaucratic organization that change is always going to be slow coming. There's so many people who have a voice. I don't think that Cookson tried nearly as hard, or at least did not show publicly that he tried very hard to push more radical change. Um, I think people were disappointed in a lot of things. I think people were disappointed in, you know, the fact that he ran on a platform and part of increasing the professionalism of women's cycling and people don't necessarily see a whole lot of change there. La Partient ran on the same kind of platform and we'll see, but early indications are not necessarily all that encouraging as, you know, his first move was to you know, basically announce a, an increase in the minimum wage for world tour and pro continental riders. But people have been asking for a minimum wage for women professionals for years now. And there was nothing, nothing said about that. And, you know, Cookson would always, you know, there was always this sort of this, this refrain of like, well, if we do that, it'll damage the women's side of the sport because sponsors will be more reluctant to, you know, to, to back that. And I'm like, I, I really don't know about that. I, I, my sense is that like, it would cause a split between teams like, you know, Bulls Dolmans that really are truly professional and teams that are registered as professional, but really kind of aren't. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. I agree. I mean, it was definitely not the way that you would have hoped he would have started off his, yeah. his term. And uh, well, we'll see. For, I mean, what would you like to see from him? Uh, I honestly don't know. You know, I, I mean, I, I'm I'm curious, and I know we're going to talk about some of the changes to to the sport, like the the number of riders per team. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think the calendar needs to get cleaned up. Mm-hmm. Um, I would also like to see somebody that's really willing to look at a salary cap and is really willing to reach yeah. out to the teams and the race organizers, mm-hmm. and and try to find a, a a business model that works for everybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I definitely don't want to see a season where we go through what we went through with Sky throwing, you know, dollar, you know, euro and euro and euro at every but at every rider they can sign that has talent. While while Slipstream Cannondale Draypack is having to crowdsource funding just to stay afloat. So, yeah, I don't see how you can be the president of the UCI <clears throat> and not look at that and say mm-hmm. this is a problem. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I, it will be interesting to see how that goes. I think there may be uh, more uh, interest in that than there was in the past. Uh, Bob Stapleton, the um, the chairman of the board of directors for USA Cycling and the former uh, manage, general manager for, for High Road, the HTC Columbia team, was also elected to the UCI management board. And he said that he's 
he's interested in uh, in pursuing a salary cap and kind of you know had the same sort of shoot down of of Chris Froome's communism quotes that you know that we had last week on our podcast. Uh, so that'll be interesting. And and as it as it uh, happens, Team Sky's uh, annual budget was released yesterday uh, for the the 2016 accounts. And there, when we talk about a salary cap, their team budget increased 27 percent from from 2015 to 2016. Their budget was. <sighs> $41.6 million for last year. That's just absurd. That's it's incredible. absolutely absurd. $41 million for a World Tour cycling team. I mean, when you think about teams like, you know, like Slipstream or like, you know, a smaller, you know, some of the smaller teams out there that are existing on probably more like 12 to $15 million. I mean, think about that. You're looking at three times the salary there are three times something. the budget. It's it's incredible. I mean, like, what they what could do you something. do for three times the budget of what you've got right now? And so I I think yeah, a salary cap. I would like to see at least some discussions of that uh, come very soon. The other couple of things I'd like to see are is some movement on the anti-doping front um, to really underline that that WADA's uh, banned substance list is a floor, not a ceiling, and to take things like tramadol uh, and take them and make them actually illegal, uh, to take things like cortisol or cortisone rather, and, you know, to sort of implement how the MPCC does that, where it's not that you can't have it, it's just that it means that if you do, you shouldn't be racing your bike right then, um, things like that. Um, I'd also like to see, honestly, I'd like to see them take a stronger... Um, a stronger approach toward the whole motors testing thing. I mean, as we've uh, as we've discussed before, the the way that the UCI does that with their tablets is it's it sounds like it's from the STAD two report a few weeks ago. It's can be accurate, but the way that they use it is laughable. They're not they they they, they those guys couldn't find a motorboat, um, and to to have them take on something where it's much more sort of like at least visibly apparent that they're really doing something. Um, those are the kinds of things that I'd like to see done, and, and we'll see if those happen. For me, it's all about a salary cap. Or I was thinking the other day, what about a luxury tax? Like, okay, Sky, yeah. you want to you wanna push your tax. budget way beyond everybody else's. <clears throat> mm-hmm. You're, we're going to take a percentage of right. your, you know, however many euro you are above our uh, right. given line, you're going to pay a tax on it, and we're going to take all that tax money, and we're going to divide it to the rest of the teams in the world tour, Yeah, uh, you know, based on their on their budgets. I, I, there's got to right. be... And that, that's how Major League Baseball does it. Yep, um, absolutely. And, and yeah, so you set a salary cap of, you know, whatever, 20 million, 25 million pounds, and every dollar above that, 20, whatever, say 20, 25% of that goes into this kitty that goes to, that gets split to all of the teams that are below the salary cap. Mm. Yep. And I, yeah, sure. There you go. Then you can spend as much as you want, but know that uh, that you have a decreasing sort of utility of the dollar for every dollar that you go past that line. So I think there's a number of different ways to handle it, and it's tricky because is it a salary cap? Is it a budget cap? How do you deal with um, separate endorsements where like, okay, so now Chris Froome's official salary from Team Sky is only 1 million pounds, but Pinarello signs him to a 1 million pound endorsement deal, you know, and that kind of thing. 
or Sky, you know, the, the, the television network signs him to a two million, you know, euro endorsement deal or whatever. You there you gotta have ways to sort of work around the loopholes there or to close those. Um, but it's possible. And what I would like to see is a, is a sustained discussion of exactly how to make that happen. Well, one change that we did see happen and officially announced, it was announced by race organizers earlier this year, and the UCI said, no, you guys don't have the authority to do that, only we do, and so they did, mm-hmm. <laughs> was the change the change of the number of riders that a team will field in mm-hmm. races next year. So the number is now down from eight to seven in one-day races mm-hmm. and nine to eight in Grand Tours. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, they... Well, I guess, what impact do you think this is going to have? To me, it really is just going to maybe impact safety because you're going to have fewer riders mm-hmm. on the road in any given race. But in terms of any sporting impact, I mean, <clears throat> Team Sky is still going to win the tour with eight riders instead of nine. Yeah, I think so. Uh, I, I think you're right about the safety impact. Uh, fewer riders is mathematically is always going to be a little bit safer than more when you're trying to pack, you know, 198 guys or whatever on the road. If you drop that by 22, then, you know, you've got 22 fewer bodies fighting for space, fighting to move up, uh, throwing elbows in a sprint, whatever. Um, I think that will that will help that while preserving you know, the number of teams that are allowed into a race and you're preserving the access that those teams depend on. Um, I think as far as Grand Tours, as far as uh, Grand Tours go, yeah, I think Sky will definitely still win with eight. Um, I think it does, I don't know, it's it's too early to say. I I would hope that it would change things a little bit. I I think that um, the seven rider teams for Classics will be really interesting. Will it though? I yeah, mean, I do. I, 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 maybe, maybe if you're quick step and you're going into Paris Roubaix and you mm-hmm. have 12 guys on your roster that conceivably could play a significant role in dictating the outcome of the race. But mm-hmm. I mean, go look at, go look at most teams rosters for mm-hmm. any race. I feel like always that eighth guy in a one day, that ninth guy in a grand tour, with the exception maybe of the Tour de France because it's the Tour de France. Right. Was somebody that was, you were, and I know this from being a director sportif, I mean, there, there are races where you're struggling just to fill the minimum number of right. riders you need for a roster. And so mm-hmm. that eighth rider is a guy that is a neo-pro that really isn't ready to do the Tour of Flanders, mm-hmm. but, you, but you need a, you need a you body. Need a body right. You know, so I, I don't, I mean... I, I'd love to hear your argument, but I just I really don't see it making that much of a of an impact unless it's a deep team. Like it'll be interesting to see Team Sky say having to choose between bringing Ian Stannard to help control the race on the flats right. or another or, climber for or, the mountains. Yeah, right. Or or choosing between okay, we can only bring we need that climber, so we can only bring Ian Stannard or Luke Rowe. But yeah. not both. That can, I, th- I think both. that's the kind of thing. It's 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 the kind of thing. Like it's hard for me to make an argument right now because it's it's counterfactual. I don't have something to point to to be like here's what well, here's what happened when. Um, but I think there will be instances where in both classics and grand tours where the lower rider numbers will actually start to make a difference from that tactical standpoint. Maybe it's that crosswind stage where. You know, quick step, you know, decided that they wanted to win stages, so they brought a team of hitters for that. 
and you've got Chris Froome, you know, and he's Luke Rose off the back for whatever reason, and all he's got around him is a bunch of spindly climbers because they couldn't bring standard, that kind of thing. Um, when you look at next year, especially with the rumors sort of coming out about, the, you know, the, a return to a Roubaix stage for, for the Tour de France, all of a sudden that ninth rider that, you know, for, for that kind of a day, that starts to become critically important. Mm. Yeah, I, I so agree. That's my but, but no, but, but but yeah, no, I I agree with you, and I think that for a team like Sky, that's mm-hmm. the issue. But I think for most right. other teams, you know, I, they're struggling just to find eight good riders or seven yeah. seven good riders. I think to really have a significant impact, you'd have to do something like I believe they did in the Tour of Poland, where you have five or six rider teams. Yeah, you right. know, now you're really getting into right. a situation where you can't control the race mm-hmm. from start to finish and win it necessarily mm-hmm. so. i think here's my prediction is it'll be subtle right up until the point where it's not and then it'll be vital and it'll yeah. happen on it'll happen on those stages like it'll happen on stages like a roubaix stage it'll happen on stages like stage 15 of the tour this year you know where Kwiatkowski was there to you know to give the wheel to you know to Froome and slap him on the ass and get him going again and you know and they still had land up front to drop back and pace him like you'll still have those two guys but who won't you have and and where will that where will that a gap start to manifest I don't know so I do find it really interesting that the the CPA that the um has come out basically reflexively against this the riders association saying that you know it provides less employment opportunity for the riders and like you know the teams don't like this either and that kind of thing and I don't know it's just like guys like you pointed out there's all those times where like, oh man, I got to find an eighth or a ninth guy to add to the roster. I'm going to grab this guy who, you know, he, he was sick for a week and he's back training, but he's not really, really back, but we need a warm body. So we're going to throw him in that kind of thing. Uh, there are, you know, there are many points in this calendar going back to your point about like, let's clean up the calendar. Many points in the season where teams are, have, have, uh, you know, are trying to field competitive squads at two or three races on two or three continents. And you're telling me that 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 reducing riders from that is is somehow going to hurt? I I don't well, I don't know I don't get it. Mm. Well, I guess here's the argument because I I actually I I I think the riders and the team's concerns are valid because you know yes there are those moments when a team is struggling to fill a roster but there are mm-hmm. other moments when you have 28 guys that are all healthy wanting to race mm-hmm. and you don't have places to send them I mean how many mm-hmm. times especially from the perspective of young American riders how many times have we seen guys that have to leave leave big world tour teams just because they're not getting any race starts and so mm-hmm. they have to sort of downgrade from one program to another also as a team if you have fewer riders in races and need to find more opportunities to get riders into races now you're expanding the, your you know the logistical side of your program you know now mm-hmm. maybe you're going now maybe you're an italian team who finds itself racing in france more often because they mm-hmm. just need to get their guys into races right so uh, i don't know i mean I guess that what I'm what I'm saying is I found it interesting, and I understand the reasons why this can't happen, that they're going to lower the number of riders that can start in a race, but they're not going to lower the overall size of a team roster. Yeah, I think, and the, you know, not lowering the overall size of the team roster is sort of a direct, you know, comment to the well, it won't necessarily make teams smaller thing. Like if they if they'd said, well, and you know, team the minimum team size is going to drop to twenty three or whatever, then that would be, to me, that would be sort of like a clear sign to you know to that that the CPA's concerns are are valid. 
Um, but they're not. And so it feels like what they're doing is taking a little bit of a wait and see attitude where it's like, all right, you know, you've got 28 guys on your team, but at any given point, how many of them really need to be racing? Or, you know, to me, part of this is, okay, so like you said, you're not getting those race opportunities. I don't know that that's really that big of an issue anymore. Uh, I think a lot of times when guys aren't getting race opportunities, it's because they're sick. It's because they're not trained and that kind of thing. I mean, look at, does Chris Froome need more race days? The guy raced like 30 days this year. No, you're right. That's a really good point. I mean, safety goes beyond just safety within the race. I mean, it it goes to a rider's overall health and well-being. There are guys who raced 90 days this year, and I'm like, all right, maybe you take a few of their days and give them to another guy. So, I mean, not everybody's trying to be, you know, Adam Hansen. Um, and I don't know. I just, the re- sort of the reflexive, you know, reaction to that, I just, I don't know, kind of made me chuckle. And I, the last point I make about that is like, hey, listen, I'm, I totally understand you're concerned about your employment. But in a way, it could make racing better if smaller fields are also sort of more uniformly competitive. And you don't mm. have, you know, like, you know, like, okay, so that, that, you know, that, that guy, that ninth rider who gets put on that team, is that a quality start for him if he drops out after 50K because he's still getting over being sick? Is, is it a quality, you know, addition to the event if he's, you know, in the group after, you know, halfway through the day? Like, does that, does that help the sport at all? Does it make it more interesting to watch? And I think that's, you know, that's the impetus for this move is safety. It's they say to improve the safety of spectators, riders, race convoy, all that kind of thing. But they're also trying to open up the races and make them more exciting to watch. And I think from that standpoint, I, you know, from that narrow standpoint, I look at the concerns of the riders and I'm like, guys, it's sorry, it's not really about your employment opportunity. Yeah, and, and, and I think in terms of the health of the sport and making races more exciting, I think races that may feel an immediate impact are races that have previously been overlooked because mm-hmm. now you're going to have better guys going to more races, perhaps. Mm-hmm. And so some of those 1.1, 1.2, 2.1, right. you know, smaller one day in stage races, they're going to start seeing their, you know, their, their, the number of riders competing maybe balloon up a little bit to the point that they have a bigger field and maybe a higher quality field. So maybe hmm. it's going to create a little more, I don't know, I don't want to say parity, but, but, but maybe it's just going to create almost like a bottom up approach in terms of the health of some of these events. Yeah. I mean, well, it's a, it's an experiment and it's, you know, we'll check in at some point next year and talk about like, all right, is it working or is it not working and why, or what are the sort of unintended consequences of this? And so, but I, I will give them, you know, modest plaudits for at least being willing to do it. And I think it's, you know, like whatever the team say, whatever the rider, the CPA says, if the UCI is on board and the race and the race organizers are on board, it's happening. Yeah. Like it's not like this is going to be, Oh, we're going to roll this back under, you know, criticism or whatever. Well, um, we do have other races still to come. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the, the season is slowly winding to a winding to a standstill, but, um, what do we have? We've got, we got, we've got Parry tour. We've got the tour of Lombardy right now. Mm -hmm. I feel like we're in this thick block of Italian one day races yeah, because um, you got Giro della Media and and all this. You know, there was Coppa Sabatini today. Trevelli Varesine, like, yeah. like lots of lots of stuff going on. So if yeah, you're a fan of Sonny Colbrelli, in other words, you're you're, <laughs> Tune you're in this now. is your favorite time of year. <laughs> Milano, Torino, um, you name it. Yeah, 
<laughs> and unfortunately, we um, you're you're actually flying out to Pennsylvania for the bicycling fall, fall classic. classic. And actually, Joe, I'm going to throw this out there. You and I will both be riding the fall classic. It comes up uh, this Sunday, October first. <coughs> I think you can still register, and I think oh, there's yeah. day you of can, registration. I think you can register day of. Mm. Joe and I are probably doing uh, well I, i'm doing the 25 miler because i'm out of shape and so i'm going to try to convince joe to do it with me but if you uh if if you're by chance listening to this and you're coming to the fall classic i'll offer some piece of swag i don't know what that piece of swag will be but i will find some treat for the first person that comes up to one of us and says hey i listen to your podcast you don't have to tell us you like it even just tell us you listen <laughs> just <laughs> Just to, and and you have to prove that you listen to the podcast. Which I guess if you, if you if you're uh, coming up and telling us that, then then well, I guess you are because how else That's would you probably know? Enough. So <laughs> yeah. never mind. I'm thinking on the fly, and it is not going well. <laughs> anyway, um, but because you know we're, we're not going to be able to get together next week, which means we won't be able to offer an official preview of of some of those big one day races, mainly because the start lists haven't even been announced yet. But one thing I do want to do is. I don't know if we'll call it a rant, but I'm really upset about what has happened to Parry Tour over the last several seasons. I mean, you know, this used to be one of, I mean, it's not a monument, but this used to be one of the the key fixtures of the autumn calendar. You know, it's the Sprinters Classic. Mm-hmm. It's one of the oldest races in the sport. I think it was first run in 1896. Um I mean, some pretty prestigious riders have, you know, Philip Gilbert, Greg Van Avermaet, Andre Schmiel, um, Gaviria won it last year, Matteo Trentin. I mean, you know, so it's not, it's not an event for, for the week. But I feel like it's really just become an afterthought. I mean, it's mm-hmm. not even in the world tour anymore. To make matters worse, it's, this year it's being run on the same weekend as the Tour of Lombardy. So the mm-hmm. hopes of anybody trying to become, I believe it would be the fifth rider, maybe the sixth rider to do what they used to call the autumn double by winning Paris Tour and the Tour of mm-hmm. Lombardy. You know, forget that. I mean, Philippe Gilbert did it, I think, in 2009. Um, but I, I, don't, I don't know. I just, I guess this is something when I say clean up the calendar, mm-hmm. I, I mean, and, and, and I guess that I'm coming from an old school curmudgeonly perspective of, you know, the three days of Dupana should be three days, not not two. <laughs> right. You know, and 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 Parry Tour should be in the World Tour. It should be it should be an event of mm-hmm. that 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 is given the respect that I think it deserves. And and I just I just find that really disappointing. It's something that comes to mind every fall. And in the past, I just haven't had you know mm-hmm. a podium from which to share my displeasure. But you know, hey. Now I got a podcast. So what do you think is the reason for that, though? Because this is an ASO event and has been forever, basically. And if there's any entity in the sport that has the power to sort of muscle stuff, you know, muscle around, throw its weight around and get what it wants, it's ASO. So are they to blame for sort of like benign neglect here or is there are there other things going on? I've looked, you know, I, I've, I've done some research. To, I mean, I, I can't find anything about it. I mean, it really is just this quiet little mystery. Um, hmm. it, it, it's definitely not the caliber of the riders, because as I said, I right. mean, good guys, good guys line up for this race, and certainly more would line up for this race if it were on mm-hmm. the world tour. So right. I really, I don't know. I mean, you know, ASO runs it, yes, but mm-hmm. every race within ASO's 
empire has its own local organization. So I right. don't know if, if, if there's something going on at the local <laughs> level that mm-hmm. has led to it sort of falling Mm-hmm. you know falling off the calendar a little bit i i, yeah. I really don't know it's just it's just I, it's just sad i think calendar crowding definitely plays a role like you mentioned it's the same weekend as lombardia uh and you're looking at like okay well you know could they move it to next weekend well then like next weekend next week is the world tour tour of turkey which allegedly is still happening uh the week after that is the world tour tour of Huangxi in china so and, and these are like uh, as world tour events are sort of eyebrow raisers to me, like I, I appreciate that, you know, that the UCI wants to expand, you know, competition globally and that kind of thing. I just, at this stage to shoehorn stage races in late this season, you know, in far flung locales, if you get the call from your team director, like, Hey, we're going to start you in the tour of Huangxi. Are you going to be super psyched about that? Probably not. Um, and that creates this, you know, this kind of, crowding or artificial crowding around the calendar where it's like uh, is, where's the room for something like Paris tour anymore it's it's hard to find a spot where you're like okay we'll put it here and it'll be world, world tour and it'll be you know won't conflict with anything else and people will show up well this weekend would have been perfect you know the only yeah. races going on in the area this weekend are the remnants of what used to be the four-day circuit franco bells which is a, a, mm-hmm. a really amazing little was amazing little four-day stage race um obviously along the border between France and Belgium. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was traditionally a race that guys would use as, if you want to call it a build-up or a warm-up to Paris Tour. But mm-hmm. I, I find it hard to believe that that those <clears throat> two now one-day races on Saturday and Sunday have enough clout to hold up something like Paris Tour. So, yeah, yeah it, it really it's really just kind of mind-boggling to me. Yeah, I, it would be nice to see it come back. We'll see, you know, at some point maybe it will. Um, but at this point, it looks like sort of a one-way descent. Yeah, uh, that's unfortunate. That's definitely unfortunate. I guess the last thing I, I wanted to chat with you about briefly, you know, we, we joked about how it's not really cyclocross time yet, but there still were two World Cup cyclocross races in the United States. And mm-hmm. I, uh, you know, I, I just didn't have time to watch them. Um, I also, for some reason, I, like you were joking, it just didn't feel like it was time to watch them, you know, like, Mm -hmm. like Christmas decorations in the middle of October. It just, it just felt like it was too soon. But I mean, I I imagine that you at least saw some of the photos and read some of the, the, the reports Mm -hmm. from what happened. I did though. I, I, I just found myself feeling awkward, weird, dismayed, looking at photos of cyclocross, stars warming up with ice vests and collapsing after the finish line and rehi i don't i I guess were these two world cup events were they i don't want to say bad for the sport that's a little extreme because i understand the benefit of trying to you know bring the uci world cup over to the united states where the sport Mm -hmm. is really popular but I, i i mean i don't know did it creep you out did you find it awkward i mean what 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 were your thoughts on anything that you saw coming out of these two these two races um i'm i definitely have the sense that that for me like like we laughed about last week that cyclocross doesn't really start until october um and yeah the whole thing of like you know people warming up wearing ice vests and that kind of thing and collapsing after the finish from heat exhaustion of all things is very strange um i I don't know. I 
I feel like right now, at least for the World Cup to expand off of the European continent, this is the only calendar slot that works. Um, and that's that's a crappy thing because it means that the races here are not necessarily as um, as good as they could be in that sense. You know, like um, Jeremy Powers is talking about the courses and, you know, compared the Truck World Cup course a little bit to Azencross, but obviously we don't have the weather conditions that Azencross has so because of the timing on the calendar. So in some ways, like, the course doesn't get to show what it's really capable of um, because it's just bone dry, dusty, hot, all of that kind of thing. Um, I feel like, you know, when I look at the calendar for cyclocross, I feel like one thing that that might have to happen is that that we just have to get away from this Eurocentricness. We're like, oh, we can't possibly ask the poor deers to come over to North America in, you know, in October. That would not be right. Like, so what, man? People go, people fly internationally all the time now. Come over, do your race, go home. Stop bitching about it. And Peter Sagan just did it, and oh, by the way, he won a race and then won a big one yeah, uh, a couple like, weeks later. I, I don't know. It's just the, the 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 idea that we like treat that, that we like wrap these guys in mattresses or something. It's uh, as far as travel goes. It's like, uh, and then you know you look at some of the dual weekends where it's like, oh yeah, we got a World Cup in Belgium, and then there's you know, and then there's another race in France the next day, or there's you know, there's a World Cup in you know whatever Italy, and then there's a you know a DVV trophy on Sunday. Like, so wait a minute. So you can race on Saturday in Italy in a World Cup and get on a plane and fly home. And then the next day you're racing at, you know, whatever, Koppenberg Cross, that kind of thing. And that's okay, but it, it wouldn't be okay for you to come to the U.S. for like a, you know, for a one-week stretch of races in, in October. I don't know. So I think we've got to get past that. I think this is the first step is sort of bringing guys over. It's like it's a World Cup. And there's World Cup points at stake, and so you should probably come over and race. Not everybody does, but a lot of people do. Um, and getting them over here and sort of getting them comfortable and in that environment, and then you could potentially start to move those dates on the calendar back into what I would consider to be sort of the traditional cyclocross season. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. It, it just, bottom line, it just feels too early for me. Like, I literally didn't even look at the cross calendar until today. Well, I mean, it's funny you say that, though, because the European cross season starts as early. I mean, there, I think, are our cross rate, you know, I think they've been racing cross in Europe for almost two weeks now. So yeah, it's but not World not Cup. Too, like, I mean, no, no, what, no, no. Uh, what is it? The, um, uh, the Super Posterior starts early, but like DVV doesn't start until November. No, you're right. You're right. So, like, you know, I'm sorry, if you guys want to go and do the, you know, the whatever, the, the championship of West no my that's fine like i don't really care but when we're talking about like legit big time you know events then yeah stuff doesn't really seem to start until october so i'm curious to see the impact it has on the riders themselves i mean Wood yeah. Art did not look good this weekend and hmm. now he's going to fly back home it's it's a lot colder in europe right now um I'm curious to see if guys that came over might regret it, if there's going to be, you know, a bit more of an extended jet lag in terms of their fitness when they when they get back over there. And then I wonder if next year that's going to make them reconsider making the trip at all, which could then perhaps actually encourage people to start talking about, you know, hey, if these events really are worthwhile, then maybe we should try to find a, a more sensible spot on the calendar for them. And I guess, you know, 
not not that this is going to go viral, but like I'm not hating on these events. Like I love that they were here. Mm-hmm. I think I think that in terms of I think in many cases, you know, the, the the grassroots cyclocross culture of the United States is in some ways even stronger and more prolific than it is in Belgium, where I think things are just dominated by the pros mm-hmm. and, and the elite level amateurs. And, you know, there isn't this, um, you know, the all day eventedness of it that, that, that we see here. By the way, somebody told me that apparently... Sven Nace is going to be hosting the single speed world championships in Baal on <laughs> the day of the GP Sven Nace. Not this coming January, but um, I guess it would be January 1st, 2019. So, Joe, oh. I don't know about you, but <laughs> I am definitely heading over to compete in, in that event. That sounds like a good time as, as Sven's going to run it. And so, and that course is wicked. So, um, so yeah, anyway. Um, I don't, yeah, I don't know. I mean, one thing that was interesting is that uh, a lot of the Euros said that, that the crowds at Jingle Cross and, and the Trek Cup were much better than the crowds in Europe. And that, like the crowds in Europe tend to be very businesslike and they cheer for they cheer for the top guys and then they just sort of like sit there and silently and watch people pass or they jeer them or that kind of thing. And in the U.S. it's very much about the culture and being a part of that culture and cheering on everybody. Um, and so I think the the racers really enjoyed that i think they enjoyed that a lot more than they enjoyed um cross vegas a couple of years ago when they got you know when when, um guys got beer thrown on them and stuff like that um and i think in that respect the that sort of strong grassroots approach could potentially help those events and help to you know help to bring those guys back but yeah i think to your point a lot of it depends on you know as they go back to europe how well do they feel they recovered from that? And that's also what, what is going to determine whether or not they could ever move those events farther into the calendar. Because if guys say, well, you know, I came back from that and I got sick or it took me two weeks to get back to full speed, then they're going to say, you know, there's no way that I want that in October. I'm just heading into the heart of the season. Yeah. Well, we'll see. That we will. So, um, why don't we wrap it up here, Joe? I mean, do you want to make a prediction for Parry Tour or the Tour of Lombardy? We have no start lists, other, you know, or at least very minimal ones, so I'm not going to judge. Well, I will, but I won't judge too hard. But any calls? I think uh, Lombardy for me, uh, I'm going to say Kwiatkowski, honestly. Uh, and Parry Tours, I would, I would give it to Gaviria again. Yeah, I like the Gaviria pick. Um, just to be different, uh, I'm going to say Vincenzo Nibali. Okay, for uh, for Lombardi. All right. For Lombardi, yeah. Yeah, no, that's good. I like it. I think he'll probably be, you know, he'll be much more recovered from his uh, from that late crash at uh, at Vuelta España uh, that, that kind of kept him out of worlds. And, yeah, I mean, great way for him to sort of finish things off for the season. So, uh, so yeah, check back with us to find out how wrong we were again. <laughs> Yeah. So, and don't forget our offer. If you are in the neighborhood, please come and join us on Sunday at Bicycling's Fall Classic. It, it really is a fun time. It's it's beautiful roads. It's great routes. There's a, there's beer afterwards, food trucks. It's a lot of fun. And like I said, if you find us a free treat for the first person to come up and say that they listen to this podcast. So... Um, and if you want to listen to this episode and other episodes you can always find them on iTunes SoundCloud and Google Play 
Um, heckle us on Twitter at or delaycast. Send wisecracks via email or delaycast at gmail.com. Um, Joe, thank you as always for joining me today. He's Joe Lindsay. I'm Whit Yost. This was the Ordelay Pro Cycling Podcast. Thank you.